Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. On the viewpoint. I'm now going to be moving that all these people, once arrested and jailed and sentenced, they should not be in jail and enjoy life there. They should be subjected to hard labor, the harshest of labor in prison, because what they are doing to society is just beyond words to even talk about. The hurt, the harm that they cause to the families of the victims and society also has to bear the costs of having them in prison and some of them clearly even come out of prison without any form of remorse and then continue to perpetrate these acts again. A recent report on the national lockdown showed that over 230,000 people were arrested for breaching national regulations. In a discussion held last week with Sasha Gear, she raised the argument that the basis of these arrests may be the in antithesis to the values that underpin restorative justice. Restorative justice is a balance between giving effect to the interests of the victims and the rehabilitation of the offender to society predicated on the rule of law. In light of the president's comments that these statistics in the SANEF briefing and Lamola's broader plans to rehabilitate offenders, are we doing enough to achieve and uphold these ideals? On the line this evening, Mike Batley. Mike, good evening. Thank you for your time. Good evening, Fangeza. Good evening to the listeners. You are listening to President Ramaphosa's position. Your thoughts on that? This is, of course, in December last year, following the funeral of a student who was brutally murdered, one young lady, Precious Ramabulana, in Limpopo province. And this prompted the president to respond as he did. Many would argue that the president expressed what broader society thinks. And those, of course, who took him to task were the first to point to the rule of law and the constitution and the transformative agenda, as well as the principles underlined by section, I mean, rather by chapter two of the constitution in terms of the punishment at the same time should not be inhumane and degrading as well as cruel. Your thoughts, particularly to that link by President Ramaphosa. Yeah, I'm sure you're right that he was expressing the way many people in society feel. Um, And I think outrage is an appropriate response to um, the Arenda kind of acts that he was responding to or that he was referring to there. Um, I think that if we just focus on punishment, though, it's it's highly problematic. Um, Punishment and... um, you know, locking people up for extended periods, um, insisting that they do hard labor, doesn't inculcate good behavior by itself. So we, we can't encourage good behavior by trying to deter bad behavior. I think that's, that's the one point that, that comes to mind immediately. And the other is that locking people up and um, making them uh, do hard labor as in, that, in that tip there, what does that actually do for victims? So we can argue that it might keep the victim safe, and I think that that's valid. But in terms of actually addressing the harm that victims have suffered, the needs that victims have, it doesn't do anything for that. So I think the whole way that we think about um, 
responding to crime, responding to um, wrongful behavior and, and uh, behavior that causes people immense harm um, needs a very fundamental rethink. And that, that is what restorative justice is, as uh, Sasha introduced it last week. Okay. Let's talk about the timeline of restorative justice. Starting from the point of A, A being, it is now established that the morals of society have been wronged or the social contract among people in a given society have been wronged and we know who the wrongdoer is, Songhezo. What should happen to Songhezo for him to be back in society and for him not to be, so to speak, public enemy number one? What happens? Wrongdoing has been established against a norm that had been established in keeping the society. What follows? Well, I think it's, a lot of that depends on the, the, the kind of wrong that has been um, committed and the, the kind of harm that other people have suffered. So that would be the one, you know, it's, it's hard to speak of it in, in such extremely general terms. I think one needs to make it much more specific. Um, Let's talk about it in the sense of the extremist or the most extreme of wrong, killing, raping a young female and in a society such as ours, perhaps, it has been happening one too many times. Yeah, I think that is an extreme example. And I think that, you know, when somebody is obviously a very dangerous threat to society, then a long period of imprisonment is an appropriate response. So I don't think that's a good way of unpacking restorative justice. So perhaps we could take a, a less extreme example, let's say, of... Um, two young men who have had a couple of drinks and they get into an argument over whatever and they end up um, uh, fighting one another and in the process um, uh, maybe an instrument comes out and one of them gets stabbed. Um, doesn't lose his life but there's, you know, there's some, some, some medical uh, attention required. In a situation like that, uh, and I mean it's obviously one of, of many that, that we could look at, but I think that that sort of scenario begins to open up other realities and possibilities. So first of all, in a situation like that, the victim and the offender, those roles are not that uh, clearly defined. Um, there's a bit of a mutuality um, of, of, of who the victim and who the offender is. The fact that they, it arose out of violence, um, and perhaps let's say, first of all, out of conflict, which then escalated and led to violence, which led to harm, is another perspective. So now the orthodox response of our criminal justice system would be to say, well, this is a serious offence, um, probably would uh, convict a person of um, assault with intent to grievous bodily harm, um, which could carry a jail sentence. Now we need to ask ourselves what that jail sentence would accomplish. Would it affirm the value of um, resolving conflict peacefully? Would it do anything to um, address the, the needs that that victim has, has in terms of perhaps the medical costs, um, loss of income, maybe clothing that was damaged? It wouldn't do any of that. Whereas if we brought those two people together in what is variously called the Victim Offender Mediation, Victim Offender Conference, uh, Victim Offender Dialogue sometimes, we could talk about what happened and what the underlying reasons were, um, who got hurt, what their, what their needs were, what harm was suffered, and how the person who had caused that harm um, could repay that. 
So the principles of restorative justice are less focused on punishment, although it's very clear that people need to be held accountable and there needs to be sanctions for wrongful behavior. But the emphasis is much more on repair and making things right. So the principle of restitution comes very much to the fore. And also repairing relationships, because crime is very, very often um, a violation of relationships and community. And when we simply put people in prison as our default response, we're not restoring. We're just um, destroying further. So the emphasis on repair and making things right is at the harm, is at the centre of restorative justice. Mike, I, I, I let you answer as you sought fit, but I mean, I don't think you are really responding to my question. And to the extent that you are, I'm going to have to engage you on it because. I specifically predicated that question in terms of once wrongdoing has been established in a given society with its own norms and standards like ours and something like that which the president was referring to in that opening segment that we played of his voice. This is not something extreme. This is something which is unfortunately quite commonplace in South Africa's society. All statistics in relation to gender-based violence, to violent crime, to femicide and all of those things which are most abhorrent in a given society. In South Africa's case, they are pointing in the wrong direction, all of those numbers. And that doesn't make for good reading or for good experience as a South African, as a South African woman in particular. Now, I had asked that question particularly because it cannot be dealt with outside still the context of restorative justice. What happens in that case, it's not an extreme because it doesn't happen. It's an extreme because it's happening too many times, I would dare say. Now, how do we engage that? Because what we are seized with as a society is a high rate of all of these things that South Africa at large ought to be dealing with. In the context of restorative justice, we have all the given facts at hand. How do we then move from that extreme example in your words to a point of justice restored using those facts. That's what I want to engage because this is something the country is dealing with, has to deal with. Yes. So restorative justice does apply in the case of, of intimate partner violence, very definitely. Um, so let's start with the, the example that you gave, and I think that it is, uh, I mean, th- th- there's a continuum of that kind of extreme um, uh, action and, and various other um, for expressions of, of domestic violence, intimate partner violence. But let's start with that ex- extreme one. So I, I wouldn't want to argue that anything less than an extended period of, of imprisonment would be appropriate. So how do we apply restorative justice and the principles that I was referring to just now? The Department of Correctional Services has adopted the approach of restorative justice, and one of the ways that that plays out is that victims have the right to uh, make representations to the parole board before a person is released. And prior to that, they are encouraged to, if they wish, to meet with their offender in a victim-offender dialogue. So that would be um, set up under controlled circumstances with preparation done by, by skilled people and very much with the emphasis on the preparation and the, the choice. So the, it has to be a voluntary um, decision to participate in something like that. So in the case of where life has been lost, the, um, the, the kind of dialogue that can occur um, would be then between the perpetrator and the family of the victim. And that does happen to some extent. I think the department is trying to make that happen. I think it's seriously under-resourced um, in that area. 
But I've been, as, as an organization that's involved in doing that kind of work, I'm constantly struck at how it's innate to many people's sense of wanting to restore harmony. Um, quite recently, I, I had a, an example of um, a, a rape situation. So it, it wasn't a murder, but it was a, a case of rape where the, the family of the perpetrator had reached out to the family of the, of the victim um, in an attempt to make an apology and reestablish some sort of reconciliation and harmony. So I think that the principles of restorative justice resonate with our humanity very deeply. Now, that doesn't help us when we're faced with the extreme sort of example that you mentioned now, um, but I think we have to find ways to, um, to, in- to integrate it in some way. I wonder what your thoughts are at home. 2025, Mr. Mike Batley, the Executive Director at Restorative Justice Network. We are having a conversation in terms of striking the balance to achieve restorative justice between the interests of the harm done and the rehabilitation of the offender back into society such that that person can once again be counted among the men and women of that society in a progressive context. I wonder what your thoughts are. Please do give us a call. 891 is the number to dial. And our WhatsApp facility is available on 614 The same rules apply. Try and keep it concise. No noise in the background. Mr. Mike Batley is my guest. Mike, the Constitution had inherited probably of societies the most broken known to men. That was apartheid. And certain concessions were made by certain interest groups. And the culmination of all of those concessions and the social pact that the society emerged out of that was the Constitution. And the preamble is instructive in terms of what it is the society wants to achieve. We, the people, recognize the injustices of the past, and it also goes on to talk about forging a new society of openness where the rule of law remains. That in itself, in the constitutional sense, makes provision for making sure that the wrongdoing itself is accounted for. Do you generally believe, then, when you say earlier on you're not entirely convinced that prison sentences are about restoring, what what then would speak to restoring of justice, the correction aspect thereof, the rehabilitation thereof, if you took away the prison sentence aspect of it? Well, I think we need to recognize that prison or the threat of prison is not the only way of denouncing wrongdoing. Yes. So it's become that, um, but it's certainly not the only way of doing that. And we need to recognize that it's incredibly destructive um, of livelihoods, of relationships, and also that it's incredibly ineffective. I mean, uh, you know, the numbers vary, but all research across the world indicates that the majority of people who come out of prisons offend again. So while we might theorize about, um, you know, the wrong has to be accounted for and we mm. can deter by sending people to prison and we need longer prison sentences, the empirical evidence shows very, very clearly across the world, there's a consensus on this in the field of criminology, yes. that it's highly ineffective. What is? What is effective? Well, there's no silver bullet. So there's, there's a range of things that work for different offenses. So I would argue that we need lots of investment in prevention work. We need to strengthen families and communities. Uh, we need to strengthen um, institutions that build um, positive social values. 
So that's at a, at a primary prevention level, and that, that, that is really important. Mm. But once a crime, a wrong has been committed, we need massive more investment in things like diversion services and non-custodial sentences, um, and specifically programs like victim offender mediation, general life skills, vocational skills, and substance abuse programs for offenders. At the moment, we've, in, in South Africa, we have never done that. We've touched it. Um, for example, the Child Justice Act makes explicit provision to encourage that, but we've never actually invested in it properly. And in most cases, the default response of many sentencing officers is still to think in terms of prison. All of these facilities you speak of are there for me right now. I'm not an offender. I'm a member of society, and I've got access to all of these things that can make me a better person for society that can make me a better person for me. What then makes me deviate from all of this, do something which is inconsistent with the norms of this society or what is the utopia of this society to the extent that I go to the extreme of taking a life, taking away a great facility on a woman by engaging in unsolicited sex or other form of offences on her person and body and then say still we need these facilities which were always there for me to be upped. Why can't I then just take the initiative to make sure whatever is in deficit in that society, I invest my energies in there? Why do I have to deviate from this process to get that kind of attention to say, okay, our society is not strong enough on these social indicators? Why is that a necessary path? Well, I think that's a very complex question that you're posing, and there isn't a single answer, and the field of criminology has many answers to that question. Mm -hmm. I guess some of the initial uh, obvious responses would be that it's, it's those facilities and, and that those resources are not necessarily available to each member of society. In theory, they are. Yes. But if I grow up in a family where that doesn't happen, where it's, it's a very under-resourced, very broken environment, mm. where I'm exposed to violence, where my needs are not met, um, where, I'm not ex- where there are not good role models, I'm not going to grow up um, being a positively contributing member of society. I'm going to find other ways of trying to meet my needs. And this, um, you know, false, or this very strong dichotomy between the good guys and the bad guys, mm-hmm. I think, is, is extremely false because the choice to make a good decision, to, to do something right or to do something wrong, um, that is something all of us are faced with very often, you know, often several times a day. Sure. Um, and so it's not so straightforward. We're not always good. We're not always bad. Mm-hmm. And so to label people as, you know, um, bad eggs or there are certain rotten elements, criminal elements of society, and if we can just get rid of them and lock them up forever, then we'll be fine. I think that's extremely dangerous thinking. Are there no bad people generally in society that try as you might to appease their hankerings, so to speak, trying to access them to what will make them tick, so to speak, or make them productive generally, try as you might, they simply those programs don't appeal to them and as a result in the final analysis they can be generally by that same society be regarded as bad people. Do those people not exist? Yeah, I, I, I'm sure they do. Um, and those would be the people who are typically classified as sociopaths or psychopaths. Mm. Um, but I think that those are way in the majority and certainly Majority or minority? Uh, sorry, way in the, in the minority. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, and they certainly don't account for the overuse of, of prison uh, as we have it at the moment. Mr. Mike Batley would take an ad break now. He's the executive director of Restorative Justice Network. We're talking about the role of a society's program to make sure that people are taught to be good as opposed to make them fear doing bad or punish them for having done bad. Your thoughts on that? How can South Africa move from its violent trajectory? Why are our prisons as full as they are? Why do we, in the sense of COVID, have to release certain prisoners because they form the lower threshold of offences in society to make room for those who are being arrested for whatever breaking of the regulations they might commit in the times of level 5, 4, or even 3 in COVID times? Let's talk now about restorative justice and your views, particularly in the context of South Africa's society. We will be back right after this. Call Songhez or now 0891-104-207. Two comments coming in from our listeners for your attention there, Mr. Mike Batley. I've been to prison. I was smoking most of the substances to which I was addicted, but I came out not smoking. If they can put sport in prison, that can change the minds of prisoners. That's how you rehabilitate a prisoner, change his or her mind. For the first time, I don't agree with Mr. President. That's in response to that clip we played. I don't agree with Mr. President. Those people, they need help. I was once one of them. I know what I am talking about. Please put more sports programs. Just five years, you will see. That's one view. The other is coming from Mr. T in Johannesburg. Please ask your guest, good evening, Songers, what happens if someone is sentenced for a crime one did not commit, especially a gender-based violence case. The SABC ran a heartbreaking story today on 7pm News where a guy spent years in jail for a rape he did not commit. I suppose especially in the latter case, and this is something that I'm just adding on with contribution from a producer there, Mike, who do I, if I'm the one who spent time in jail for an offence I did not commit? Who is my number one enemy? Is it the presiding officer who made the ruling to take me to that confined space, as is jail, or the wrongful accuser, or is it both of them, or neither of them? Your response to those two points, please. So let me start with the last one. Um, if somebody is, has been sentenced to a, a period of imprisonment for a crime that they uh, hold that they are, are, are innocent of, mm. then they need to take steps to appeal that. Um, and there are a number of, of public law um, uh, institutions that, that would be able to assess whether they could, you know, they would assess the chances of the of the success of an appeal like that. Um, but that's the route that one has to follow to actually formally lodge an appeal via the, the criminal procedure process. In terms of, of sport in prison, absolutely. You know, the idea that that um, people are uh, locked up for, for 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 a lot of the time, um, sometimes because of overcrowding, that limits the uh, ability of the authorities to make things like sport and other programs, vocational um, programs and, and training available, um, I think strengthens the, the point that I was trying to make earlier, that we shouldn't be sending so many people there. And really that imprisonment should be reserved really only for people who are a serious threat to society. It should absolutely only be a measure of last resort. Prison should be a measure of last resort. Your thoughts on that? Have you been a victim of crime? Have you ever had to engage with the person who offended you at law? 
Are you a repeat offender? Are you a rehabilitated offender? We certainly would love your comments. And time is running out. We have all of seven minutes left in this conversation with the Executive Director of Restorative Justice Network. Please call 891 for those thoughts on the phone. 0614-104-107 for your thoughts reduced to WhatsApp. Let's go to 8Cake. Stephen, good evening. Well, good evening to you. Look, let me raise certain things that are very serious. I, I think your we computer, must all, we can hear your computer, Stephen. Please turn I, it off. I, I'm saying there are many issues that are happening in our country. Many people are in jail for crimes they did not commit. I'll give an example. Uh, a certain man recently was sentenced to 10 years in prison for crimes he did not commit, for false rape. Uh, we've got judges who read decisions in, in the in the system. And I, for one, found out that uh, personally, I found rigged court decisions in my name. And when I confronted the judges, they hit the issue. We, we, we ended up even going to the Constitutional Court. You know, judges have meetings secretly to discuss certain judgments when you confront them. Now, what I'm saying is there is something wrong with the judicial system. It has to be uh, uh, sanctioned. And secondly, it has to be kept under state security agency to to search how these judges make decisions. Uh, And and I, for one, I'm talking from a wealth of experience and knowledge on on how they operate. They use court uh, computers, to to write judgments and and when one finds out those court decisions how they are written you find out that these are smuggled court decisions some of them they are dictated when you ask them how did you come up with these kind of things they they hold certain meetings separately so one one of the things i've noted which must be corrected in our country is that the judicial system is a law unto itself and i would like your 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 guest today to highlight these issues or and or maybe uh, set out how these issues can be addressed and sure. how, how we must release those people who are in prison for crimes they did not commit Excellent. when judges do such things. We'll get Mike to respond to that. Just a quick question in relation to your personal matters. Have you at any point taken up the opportunity to approach the Judicial Conduct Committee when you have allegations, perceived or real, of a presiding officer or a judge, somebody within the judiciary, who in your view has not upheld one's oath of office? I done them fully so. And I confronted them. And I, Hello, do you hear me? I do, and I can also yeah. hear you. Yeah, look, I addressed them and I confronted them and I said to them, "Look, this, if this is the rubbish you do, if I ever meet that particular magistrate and this judge, I will personally handle them so that you can understand how serious these things are. You can't be reading court decisions. For example, no, 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 brother Stephen, just just answer my listen, question. No, I'll Stephen, I'm example. asking a question." Have you taken a judge to the Judicial Conduct Committee or Correct. a magistrate reported to the National Director of Public Prosecutions and the Justice Department? Correct. And, and let me tell you what, what happened. They kept on covering this thing up. And finally I said, look, I'm, I'm too intelligent than, than you think. Uh, when someone uses a court document or a, a computer to write whatever, uh, we leave information in the IT system. We can pick that up. I knew when you did all these things. Mm. So 
it's very easy for, for me to get information. Very easy. Okay. L- and, let's go uh, and get the response from Mike because I don't want you to get into the personal items. You've posed your question to him. Mike is in a position to respond. You've heard what Stephen has said in ACAC. Thanks so much, my brother, for calling in. Your response to, to him, Mike? Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not really in a position to respond. I'm not a lawyer. I'm a social worker. So I'm not familiar with the details of, of you know, those kinds of problems. Um, and I think the point that you made of approaching the, um, the Judicial Conduct Committee is, is, is obviously one of the ways to go. Um, and then back to the point I made earlier about appealing um, a judgment or, or a conviction that, that one believes is wrong. Even though those appeals can be quite expensive. You know, I mean, access to justice is quite still an issue in this country, isn't it? Absolutely. But there, there isn't another way. Sure. Now, let, let's now go back to why a society should always have conversations on restorative justice because i would imagine your philosophy as the just the restorative justice network is we shouldn't be lured into thinking and in your view i would imagine it's a false belief that prison is an answer to society's woes how do we actively engage me and you and the ordinary folk on the ground those who are listening to this conversation in everyday engagements as a society to maintain ultimately a restorative justice system because it doesn't start once one is a consumer of the services that are there to preside over a particular case it probably starts in the exchanges that you and i have on the ground absolutely i think it starts in the uh, our constitutional value of human dignity so recognizing the the fundamental human dignity of every single person now that's very challenging when one is dealing with uh, people who have committed heinous crimes. But in an everyday context, um, acknowledging the the, uh, the the fact that each person has human dignity, even though we might not like them, even though we might dif- um, disagree very fundamentally or very robustly with them, I think being able to affirm that dignity of, of one another. And then looking at how does one actually harness um, conflict constructively. So we tend to see conflict as something is, that is very negative. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, conflict can escalate into harm and, and crime, even serious crime. But if we recognize that conflict is part of the humans, part of uh, normal human relationships, mm-hmm. we can recognize that there are constructive and positive ways that we can um, resolve conflict, but also that the conflict can be telling us something else. It can be pointing out something else that's wrong in our context or in the structure of our, of our relationships or the structure of our, of our institutions. And so we need to attend to those. Um, and I think if we uh, open our minds and our skills to, to that perspective, um, then we are beginning to nurture a, a restorative view and a restorative response uh, of justice. Let's leave it there. Mike, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that. And I suppose if that's ever a point to depart on, I suppose we need to have more of these conversations to inculcate that understanding of the right to dignity and affording each other dignity at a human level on the basis of Ubuntu, as well as recognizing conflict is normal in a society for so long as it is harnessed in a manner that better resolves conflict before it gets to a point of applicant or plaintiff and defendant in the criminal sense. Your thoughts have been most welcome. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Mike Batley, Executive Director of Restorative Justice Network.